0: You're listening to the Physics Ed Podcast. For hundreds of ideas, free experiments and more, go to physicseducation.com.au. And now, here's your host, Ben Newsom.
1: Welcome again for another Physics Ed Podcast. Glad to have you no matter where you are around this world of ours. We're talking science, we're talking STEM as usual. And today, we're hanging out with Leslie Goff, who is very much a teacher, a scientist and researcher. And very much so. She's involved with Western Sydney University as a subject coordinator for primary science and technology for both the Master of Teaching and the Bachelor of Education programs at Western Sydney University. She has a bucket load of experience when it comes to getting students involved in science and getting them to understand the scientific method at that age group. Lost to share, Leslie very much does so. And so let's get right into it.
0: This is the Physics Ed Podcast. We're all about science, ed tech, and more. To see 100 fun, free experiments you can do with your class, go to physicseducation.com.au. That's physics, spelled F-I-Z-Z-I-C-S. And click 100 free experiments.
2: Yes, yeah, so really well, thank you. Just very hectic um, schedule at the moment. Um, assignments are coming in thick and fast, so uh, spending a lot of time marking.
3: Oh, gosh. I mean, given your role, I can imagine so. I mean, so there would be some people who may not know what you get up to, so... um, why are you doing assignments and all that sort of thing at this point in time?
2: Okay, so I'm currently working at Western Sydney University as um, a sessional academic. So I'm employed um, every semester um, to teach uh, our pre service teachers in Australia. Um, they do, I'm working on the Master of Education, uh, Master of Teaching program, sorry, and the um, Bachelor of Education programs. And I I'm um, the subject coordinator for primary science and technology on both of those programs. So um, I'm basically teaching the teachers how to teach science, which is really exciting. Which has got to bring up the point. How did you get into this sort of role? Okay, that's that's a long history. So I started out as an environmental scientist. Um, science has always been a passion of mine and um, i'm sure we'll touch on why i think we share the same passion um for science and we'll touch on why later um, i retrained as a primary school teacher um, due to the global financial crisis at the time i was a contaminated land consultant so i used to dig holes in the really dirty dirt um, which was amazing fun but once that sort of housing market crash happened No one really wanted to redevelop the really dirty stuff anymore. Um, And I sort of thought, oh, now's now's a good time to to check out my other passion of teaching. So I retrained and right from the beginning there as a primary teacher, I noticed that the passion wasn't there for science amongst my colleagues. Um, It seemed to be a bit of a burden. And it seemed to be uh, one of those things that just leave to the end, you know, they'd get their English and maths done, they'd read lots of stories, they'd have drama, they'd have all of those things. And science was that thing, oh, we haven't done any science, let's let's put some in. So really from early days there, I um took the mantle as a science lead right in my first year of teaching. I um led the stage uh, through you know, a science program linked to the curriculum. I um, We were a small school, so just two classes of um, year three children or equivalent, because this was in Scotland where I trained to be a teacher. So equivalent year two. Um, so we did this amazing science program. We built this census garden. It was amazing, hands-on science, all integrated through the curriculum. And um, And yeah, joined the sort of science group in the local authority area and helped lead some projects there. And then... Came back to Australia, where I noticed the same phenomenon. No one was wanting to teach science. So again, I was um, my, interestingly, my first role back in Australia was as a governess and a cattle station. Um, I quickly moved into distance education. Science was again left to, on the back burner. So I redeveloped the whole program from K to 12 um, and really got science at the forefront. Uh, with some excellent colleagues in STEM education as well um, and then found myself in New South Wales where I found the same phenomenon for the third time that no one liked science so I ended up as a science specialist down here um, ended up at Western Sydney University doing my Master of STEM education and um, just got talking with some of the academics, got involved in a bit of research in STEM and um, found myself teaching. Um, at the university on the programs there so um, just I, I guess it's been driven by my passion for science and latterly my passion for science is for everyone and we need to really get it at the front <laughs> rather than that thing we do at the at the end because we have to
3: oh my gosh I mean I mean that's quite a ride by the way
2: <laughs> <In> <laughs> Scotland to a them.
3: cattle station <laughs> that's, um but but yeah and, and and throughout, and you hear this a lot with a lot of people who have been on this podcast and others. Yeah, you hundred percent exude passion <laughs> for it, and uh, as such, that was, you know, I'd hope that rubbish on the various teachers that you're working with. I mean, one thing that's cropped up particularly throughout that um, that this you know that that history is that consistent, well, thing that you notice about the teachers about regarding science. What do you think's driving this?
2: Um. Well, interesting that there's a there's a wide variety of research um about why primary school teachers don't have that passion for science and um in fact one of the assignments on the master of teaching unit is about you know what are primary teacher attitudes towards science and how has the unit affected yours and the attitudes are basically um stem from not having a secure background in science themselves yeah. so whether they've had poor experience of the you know the chalk and talk sorts of experiences at school where it's um copy this from the board I remember a bit of that myself um copy copy this definition from the board that's our science lesson we're just going to write three or four definitions um and you know uh some of my pre-service teachers not seeing the relevance of it in their in their lives um and certainly you know (laughs) even uh, when I was working in distance education, so teaching the, the children on cattle stations remotely via satellite link and phone, um, comments like, science isn't for us, we're just farmers. Interesting. Yeah, so really interesting conversations like that. And and I've come back at it like, you know, science is for everyone. Let, let's find a common ground here. So conversation with a year 10 student, for example. Oh, no, no, we don't do science, we're just farmers. And I knew he was responsible for cutting some of the grass in in the paddocks at his place. And I said, "Oh, tell me about. Uh, I know you were out on the ride on, but you also had the whipper snipper out. Tell me about. Um, you know, how did you mix the fuel for that? Because I'm really confused." And he just launched into this excellent um, explanation of how ratios work. Yeah. Um, with his two stroke. And I said, you've just told me ratios, and that's a that's our chemistry topic for this week, in you know, in science.
3: Oh, it's amazing! Just even just thinking right now. I mean, we've got a lot of craziers in our family, and a number of them are tertiary qualified, and some are, are not. But they're both both groups of farmers within our family all think the same way. Just one happens to have, you know, the, the letters. Um, and the reality is that they are land managers. They are yep. soil scientists, which for, for someone like you would very much know the soil scientists and whatnot. They have to because, I mean, if they want their land to be productive, they want it to be thriving and actually looking after pastures in a particular way. There is a bucket load of science. turns out there's an entire degree and then some on agricultural ah, science.
2: That's right. And when you really dig into what they do and you yes. talk to them about what they've done to increase the productivity of their land, yes. they've used the scientific process to do that. You know, that they trial things, they've found out if it works, and then they've continued doing something that does work.
3: Oh, absolutely so. I mean, um, gone are the days of just shoving a bunch of cattle into a space and just hoping for the best and maybe reducing the head of cattle and just doing it by guesswork. There is, and I, I know very particularly, and I can go on such a tangent and go far down a rabbit hole we don't need to do right now, but I have watched. The work done in analysing the soil productivity, the crops involved, actually their nutritional value, blah, 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 blah. They are straight up scientists on the land. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm happy that you mentioned that area because it's it's true.
2: So again, with my pre-service teachers, we had um, we did uh, I, I suppose a a ch- that was called kitchen chemistry. We call it kitchen chemistry in primary school, obviously, because we're using those sorts of things that are readily available in our kitchen, um. The, you know, the low reaction sort of chemicals, yeah. not, not the big explodey chemicals, but the sort of ones you can use safely or relatively safely with students. And I was trying to um, tap into what they knew about kitchen chemistry. So we talked about cooking experiments gone wrong. So we we touched on macarons and how they huh. never worked out. I had a student that was um, had been experimenting and she, in her own words experimenting with trying to get these macarons and I'm like you're using the word experimenting how can you tell me that you're not using science in your kitchen so we we just really dug dug into that so I, I'm sort of bringing them round to my way of thinking that we're constantly using science in our lives we we don't go through a day without using science and then um, you know even tapping away on our iPhones there's there's science there and there's science involved in that process to get those tours so I guess yeah that's the pre-service teacher attitude is that I don't do science I'm not interested in science or science is boring
3: so so, so as they get exposed to kitchen chemistry and whatnot and 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 he, he, uh, hats off to anyone who is doing more than bicarbonate vinegar that is a very worthwhile yeah. thing but there's plenty more you can do than than bicarbonate <laughs> vinegar uh, but um as you as as they go through this do you see an attitudinal shift within the degree or is it, do they need to be implicitly in front of students learning that the students engage better? Like, what, what do you see happen in the lecture halls versus on the school grounds?
2: Well, what's really interesting with the way I'm teaching is um, I do a, a little bit of a mixture between I'm an academic and I'm telling you about the research yeah. and um, I'm now a year six teacher. we're going to do an experiment so I do those hands-on experiments with the students and it's amazing and just their attitude shift and even with my adults my pre-service teacher these people are you know in either undergraduate they've definitely got their 12 years of education behind them they still have those wow moments that we get with the children in the classroom and they are amazing and that that's what's keeping me at uni because I do miss you know the the kids in the schools and the wow moments but I'm getting it with these with these people who just saying simple things like I just did not know that before and it is just amazing to watch them
3: and this is the power of um of the academics who work in tertiary institutions I mean I've spoken with quite a few and yes you've got 200 teachers coming under you each year but they then go on to a do a very long career which means you're effectively impacting tens of thousands of students through this which is it could be daunting if you actually think about it <laughs>
2: it's a bit scary so I, I guess that first time I was ever um up in front of um a bunch of students I was uh, teaching on a on a different subject on maths and there were 30 people sitting in front of me taking notes and I was just thinking wow okay this is that was quite daunting and quite confronting at the time, but now, you know, quite used to it. I've been doing it for a few years now. Um, but yeah, carrying that forward, the things I'm saying and the things I'm doing in these practical lessons with my students, they are potentially impacting those students. And um, we do know that, um, you know, the uh, science, the uh, is PISA that does the yeah. science test and things like that, that. Uh, Australia's dropping in their um, science understanding. So I'm hoping you know I'm only just one person but I'm hoping that if I can impact I've got 200 students a semester, if I can impact 200 students a semester, they're potentially as you say impacting thousands of students going forward. So that's quite an exciting thought.
3: Oh it is I mean it actually makes me think about how do we construct, a pre-service science curriculum for primary teachers that actually works I mean that's there's actually a lot to unpack in that simple question
2: yeah no and that's that's sort of I'm, I'm hoping to to go into doing my PhD next year and that's exactly where I'm looking what can we do I haven't quite finalized my question but it's along those lines of how can we make this successful so that we are increasing that um, scientific literacy. I'm not even looking for educating the future round of scientists. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm not even looking to say that the children we teach they're going to be the inventors and the scientists of the future. What I'm sort of looking at is how can we ensure that our population going forward is scientifically literate.
3: Yeah, I, I want them to understand what they're reading on the internet. Yeah, <laughs> that would be kind of means- useful. I mean, actually, yeah. this is thinking, and this is actually very much um, earmarking the, the time uh, we had this discussion-ish for those people who follow this sort of area. So last week, or was it this week? I think it was last week. um, On the radio, there was a professor. I wish I picked up the name, but I missed it. Um, But she was talking about, this is not science. This is actually phonics. So early language, the ability to read, and rather important globally. Um, and... She actually wasn't pulling any punches. She pretty much says it's a complete lottery to parents, which would be scary for teachers listening in and going, oh, my gosh, she said that. But she did. And she said the research is showing that certain schools would do phonics, others would do other areas, and others would do – they're different versions. All well-meaning teachers, all wanting to make an awesome job and be able to get the kids to teach. But from a research standpoint, it's straight-up lottery. And I kind of think about from a science curriculum, or for, it could be maths, could be whatever you want to talk about, it would be really nice to be, have a rinse and repeat situation whereby, I mean, if we weren't talking about education at all, just for a moment, um, and, and here I go, that almost was almost a semi-rant, I, I kind of feel like this could happen. If we were discovering discussing a burger business how to make a burger that works i mean there's a very um particularly famous place with yellow arches that's done this incredibly well and can get 18 year olds to smash out the same burger in zambia to Zetland. it doesn't matter it's the same burger it's on spec on time to the to the audience they can guarantee it whereas if we think as science educators and we want the ability to have that you know bring in your personal experience and the capacity to Affect your students with your own knowledge and your abilities, and yet, by definition, that makes it a lottery.
2: Absolutely, and it, it depends on the students in your cohort. I've yeah. um, I've done my time as a science specialist in a few different schools, and, um, for example, teaching uh, stage two at a particular school. That I did two days a week at the school. I taught everyone in stage two. Mm. Oh, sorry, stage one. So it was year one and two in New South Wales, and um, seven classes each lesson was different it was the same plan it was the same resources conversations were different the children's interests were different the class dynamics were different um and the results were different across across the board so look as a teacher you've got all of that um you know you've got to have the pedagogical content knowledge you've got to be able you've got to know your students and how they learn you you've got to be able to modify what you're doing towards different students um and you've yeah you've got to have this really sort of good sense of how to formatively assess each individual student like is that student going to tell me or write it or another way am I going to observe that student doing something and know you know so even your assessment practices change between students so look there there is an argument for having we won't get into the argument, but there is an argument (laughs) for having specialists against not having specialists and having a generalist in primary school. And I don't know what the answer is. That's why I don't want to get into the argument because I don't have one. You know, I Mm. I don't know, is the answer to have a science specialist in primary school? And some schools definitely do. Um, And the science outcomes there are incredible. That um, one teacher can really focus on those outcomes. Um, They can teach the same lesson across many different classes and really hone their their ability but then the other teachers are missing out on that whole child experience you know because we teach in primary school we teach the whole child we don't just teach their ability to do science so even when I'm teaching science I'm there's some literacy in there there's definitely numeracy um you know there's even some geography and history in there I get into it depends where the children take me. Where are we going on this adventure today? It could be we end up um, really reflecting on the history of the science rather than the practical aspects of it. And um, by going with the students' interests, um, you're really, uh, I guess, there is research that tells tells us if we go with their interests, they remember it better. So, you know, it's a great way to go. But without my my science degree how would I go about being a science specialist? You know, like uh, just, there are, and my pre-service teachers don't have science degrees. Some of them do. The majority of them do not have a science degree, so they don't have that, that background in science. Um, so I, don't, I just don't know what the answer is to that one, Ben.
3: I think what you're doing is you're touching on the art of teaching itself.
2: Yes, there's definitely art in all of what we do. I definitely teach science better than I teach any of the other subjects. But I do have an ability to teach the other subjects, except music. I'm terrible at that one.
3: <laughs> oh, it's always, mind you, it's got some mathematical things. I actually thought, I mean, I, I mean, I, I cannot um, play a chord to save my life. However, I understand the physics of how the sound waves actually work. and so I All of I play that. Yeah.
2: The practice of it, though, can't hold a tune and, and can't tap out a beat. So, and look
3: and this is the beauty about we're not all um human swiss army knives we all have different abilities and and we can't just just get bring out every lesson at all times on spec but it's um very much i do like the idea of raising the minimum bar of what people understand about what science is which means that you're raising the minimum bar of our students themselves and their perceptions of science i I'm actually just thinking as you're talking you did briefly touch on a thing about formative assessment which is something i actually do like I I, i mean formative summative I mean it's one thing to sit a test but if they didn't know they were on the wrong path how on earth were they ever going to get past that test in the first place I mean formative formative matters which brings up the point how do you know different students if they are on a success path or not
2: oh different for everyone mm. um it really is and that's a difficult question um and when I, I'm trying to to get across the ideas of formative assessments with my pre-service teachers, I'm like there's, it's not something that you can just read in a book. You mm. can't get a textbook or an academic paper and read all about formative assessment and all of a sudden you know how to do it. it it's through experience uh, that you develop your ability to formatively assess students. And I'm constantly doing it. I am an absolute primary teacher at heart, I'm constantly doing it in my tutorials with my pre-service teachers as well and giving them the feedback and saying, oh, you've just brought up a great point. You know, all of those conversation starters you do with your your primary school students, they're absolutely still relevant, I think, in adult education as well. Uh, Giving students that feedback that they are on the right path is really important, as you say. Um. Not necessarily saying that's wrong, start again, but asking a question to get them to think about whether they are on the right path themselves. And I think that takes a lot of skill. Oh, yeah. It isn't something in your first year of teaching you're going to – oh, and in fact, you know, in my 15th year of teaching, I don't hit it every time. I don't come out of every single lesson going, yeah, I know exactly what the students can do, and that lesson was amazing. I definitely still come out of lessons thinking, wow, that did not go to plan. What can I do?
3: Yeah, but that's actually really important, that part. I mean, firstly, don't rest on your laurels, but I do like the idea of assessing as you walk out that door to the staff room going, did that actually work? And actually asking the question and being honest to yourself (laughs) is actually a really powerful thing.
2: I think that was the steepest learning curve, Mm. becoming a teacher of, you know, accepting um that uh, learning to really deeply self-reflect I yeah think, that was a big learning curve so you've got a lot of big learning curves at the beginning of your career as a teacher and um, self-reflection doesn't come naturally to most people yeah oh we're uh, awesome at everything right at all times. absolutely but what <laughs> i really like to do that's really exciting is model being incorrect Oh, that's been fun. And I've taught this to some of my pre-service teachers and I had some really good feedback this semester. So um, I was teaching some of the students I'm teaching science this semester. I taught them for maths last semester. And one of them, biggest piece of, like, amazing feedback I've had since I've started this academic journey was uh, it was all going wrong in my lesson and I just took a deep breath and thought, what would Leslie do? And I'm like, yes, that's amazing feedback. What would Leslie do? And what did you come up with? And um, the pre-service teacher said, uh, make a learning experience about my mistakes. So I actually asked the children. She said, I asked the children, what did I do wrong here? And got them just to critique her work.
3: Oh, I uh, love that.
2: And I, I said, that is amazing. Like, that is the most amazing experience because now the children have a lot of trust in you. They will. Yes, they will be able to say, you know, she's not always right. I can be I can feel free to fail here. You know, like taking responsible risks. I can fail, and it's not going to be a big deal because my teacher's not right all the time either. So yeah. I, I just loved that. And I I that that was probably my moment in in this academic journey that I've enjoyed the most when I got this feedback about modeling that taking responsible risks because I, I have just observed students over the course of my career thrusting the process and learning so much from it mm. Yeah, and there, there is research to back that up as well that's not just the world according to Leslie there is research <laughs> to back up uh that if children feel safe to make mistakes they have a potential to you know, gain knowledge and, well, they say learn through your mistakes, but it's absolutely true.
1: G'day, it's Ben here. I hope you're enjoying this particular chat. And guess what? There's so much more you can do with your science teaching. Head on over to physicseducation.com.au. There are complete and comprehensive teaching units that you can get your hands on. If you click on the top, you will find there are a whole bunch of scope and sequences, cross-curricular teaching ideas, hundreds of printable experiments and activities, videos, risk assessments, marking rubrics, you name it. It's all there and it's all linked to the curriculum and it's something that you can implement right now. Head on over to physicseducation.com.au and check out what's on offer.
3: Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think about the, um, the genuine privilege we get as outreach people, is we get to see kids from preschool up into high school, and yes, adult learners and whatever. We see the entire gamut. We get to see the entire spectrum of the curriculum in its true form, and in its different ways it gets um, implemented. And you look at the preschool kids and the early kinder, to grade one, two, by about grade two, three, they're starting to realize that sometimes I can't make a mistake in this class, I used to be able to make mistakes. No one cared, but now they care. And so you, we actually beat the creativity out of them over time.
2: Yeah, that, that's something I'm often saying, Ben. And um, I uh, I model being wrong, I, which works in my favour often because you can't – I don't always spell everything right. I'm pretty good at spelling. Mm. But you know, you're making mistakes. And, oh, and
3: yeah, There's words. I mean, parallel. Jeez, every time i mean parallel, I look at double it
2: Double L or double R. Oh, no, we
3: and every yeah. time I put it down, I go, come on, put it in your head. Because I'm like, how many times have you taught circuits? <laughs> anyway, yeah. it comes up.
2: So uh, children really feeling confident to call me out for being wrong as well. And that mm. that's when I know I've developed that relationship with my students. And yeah. they say, you know, Mrs. Goff, you didn't spell that right. Oh, that's all right. You know, I'm never going to tell a student not to tell me. You know, if I'm wrong, tell me. I'm happy with oh, that. For sure. It's just that ultimate trust between teacher and student. If they can tell you you're wrong, or question it, and I'll always tell my students to question me. As long as they're happy to listen to my justification or me admitting, yes, I was completely wrong.
3: Oh, for sure. I mean, uh, there's a couple of hallmarks I see, Um, and I know there are uh, museum educators and science communicators listening to this. G'day, how you doing? what you can usually see a ha- see a hallmark of someone who's really relaxed and thoroughly knows their content because suddenly it's no longer a script. They are just playing, and if it happens to have four hundred people in front of you on a TV camera, it is irrelevant, and they're gonna play anyway. um and then you see some of the best teachers just ask more questions than anything else, yeah. It's it's not the sage on the stage, you know, chalkboard time. Mind you, I haven't seen chalk in a very long time. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, it, it is it is very much the case. Okay, I'm just curious. I and mean, this is going on a different tangent, but, hey, we're talking about, yes, you know, we're science educator types. I mean, what is your, if you had to do a go-to experiment, I don't know, just say this podcast finishes up and suddenly get called in to do a thing this evening, whatever it might be, and you had a bunch of grade fours in front of you, so, like, in you know, the middle of the range sort of kids, um, you know, What's your go-to sort of experiments that you go, you know what, beyond nine times out of ten, this just works. It doesn't need fancy materials, and I love doing it because it always helps teach a concept. What are some experiments that you might like to do?
2: Oh, that's putting me on the spot now. Uh, it has, but I can have a ticking uh, top if you want. You yeah, know, do you know what? Actually, I did uh, an experiment from a, a very good website uh, called physics education
3: oh gosh and okay. um, yeah. so uh, it feels like this was setting up and staged this yeah. was not by the way it
2: sounds completely <laughs> set up so what i do is uh when i'm modeling to my pre-service teachers i show them where i get all my resources from uh. in primary school we're not inventing scientific concepts and we're not proving scientific theories right so we're doing experiments that have already been done hmm. and can I just say your website is great. I'm not, this is not set up everyone. No, the right. website's amazing because I, I've been, since I, we um, ran into each other at the conference um, a couple of months ago, I actually realised that you've got all of those free experiments and I haven't been utilising them. So I, for my, for last week's prac for kitchen chemistry, we did uh, the effect of um, the temperature of water on the growth of yeast. Okay, good one. So really Easy experiment as a, a teacher, you're often gathering resources from home to take into your classroom. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've got yeast and sugar, you can do this experiment. You don't need anything fancy, just some empty plastic bottles, some yeast, and some sugar. Thermometer is optional, it doesn't really matter what the temperature is, as long as you can say one's warmer than the other. Yep, uh, it always works as long as your yeast is in date. Sometimes, yes. if it's date, suggest- it still works, I was about but- to
3: suggest that that's a variable. <laughs>
2: Yeah, so um, what I really like about it is it can be changed to, you know, be as complex or simple as you like. As I say, you can just Mm get some hot water and some cold water and do a field test. One's cold, one's hot. What's the effect? You can make it super fancy and have thermometers and uh, we've actually got these really cool uh, plastic primary school level sort of test tubes at uni which were amazing to use you know you can make it as simple or complicated as you like but you always get a result from that and it's a really great um example of how to plan a fair test in science
3: oh that's fantastic and the beauty about that particular experiment is then you can go on to tangents of why is it a bell curve yeah cold not so good hot yeah you pretty much kill everything and it's yeah it's like the goldilocks situation where the balloon inflates the best in the middle. And you ask why, and why, and, and the next part is why should we care? Why does yeah. this matter? And...
2: Yeah, well, we didn't quite get into that, but it just opened up that, uh, I guess, first berets into doing a fair test for some of my students since they were at school.
3: Yeah.
2: And I, I, I brought to them, all you need is curiosity, which leads to a question and the, the ability to do a fair test. And now you've got a science experiment. Hundred
3: percent. I actually, um, definitely have, um, of worked with many teachers. I thought, you know, think of a, uh, a control freak. Sorry, scientists out there, just remember. Seriously, if you can, if someone's going to be really, like, really doing an experiment properly where it's valid, is if you control absolutely everything, and just change a something. Doesn't matter what yep. it is. Just change a something, and if you measure that something, and the change, you're sort of doing science. It doesn't really matter if there's if it's a null result or not. The fact that you've changed something and you're comparing, that's all Mm -hmm. science is. I mean, honestly, that boils down, you know, a multiple year degree into a simple like one minute sentence. That is science.
2: (laughs) And that's, you know, that brings me to uh, my favourite word to teach my little scientists is anomaly. I absolutely love teaching them the word anomaly because no result is a result in science. And what I even preface some of my teaching with, I used to love being a scientist because it was the only career where you can get paid loads of money to be wrong. As long as you yeah. write a sentence, I was wrong <laughs> at the end. And they still pay you the money and you still publish the paper, yep. but you've just proved your hypothesis wrong, which is a result in itself. Yep. And sometimes you don't get a result or your result is different to someone else's. And that's where we bring in the word anomaly. And I find that the small people, the the really little learners, really love the long words and can retain them and can use them in context, which is surprising to a lot of people I talk to.
3: Oh, I was like trying to say get a kid to say and Yeah, I can't yeah, even say they, it.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm not very good with that one either. But anomaly is a fantastic one for explaining those things that you know it doesn't turn out as planned or your result is not the same as everyone else's, yeah. but you kept everything the same. We have an anomaly, and it's where you know science—you can be wrong in science, and oh, I, I love, I love that, and I love how science and the science classroom or the science lab, as I always call it, and always wear my lab coat. And I'm calling it a science lab, even though it's the same classroom they were in for their English lesson ten minutes ago. When they're in the science lab, you know, and it's that responsible risk-taking, and that children don't feel under pressure to get the right answer. As long as they get an answer and they can explain why.
3: What if we just teach our students to celebrate either it does make an effect or celebrate, it does not make an effect. They're both celebrations. They're both results. Um, I mean, that's something definitely if you're listening on in, if you're watching your kids, I put money on, there'll be students in your room that feel down upon themselves because something didn't happen. I'm like, great, you found out something, mate. That yep. That's what you've just found out. Um, if we learn to celebrate both versions of said result because they are real results, and the kids will just be happy about doing the process. take some time because we all like seeing you know in in case of the yeast, you like to see the balloon grow the biggest um with the carbon dioxide being made, but the the cold one that didn't inflate
2: at all that was still like, guess what cold is not so great for this growth, and I even we talked about um the water eventually over time Mm -hmm. coming to the same temperature so that cold water is eventually going to have a result if we left it long enough now our pracs are only two hours long so we can't leave it long enough but i did explain to them go go home and do this but leave your four samples out for 12 hours and you should or you might get the same net effect
3: overall and listen to that misconception with that hot water because we some kids thinking if the hot water comes down to tepid water it's going to do the same thing as the cold water, but they killed the yeast. But... Yeah, that's <laughs> but... exactly right.
2: So it's ensuring they've got the language to explain those things mm. and they've got the understanding that, you know, and we're going into rather living world rather than the material world of the, the syllabus. But understanding that yeast is a living organism as well, which, again, was news to, to, some, of, um, to some of my students in the past.
3: Oh, for sure. Um, definitely. I think that's actually some time that's well spent um, before we, I mean, we all build out these units of work. I would like a little bit more time spent just for a moment on what are known misconceptions of students globally on this subject? Because yeah, once you know big... it, rather than you discovering them, I mean, you're going to discover them anyway, but at least know the top 10 that's going to turn up no matter what.
2: There Tell are there. there is some great research on some of the misconceptions Uh research done on children's science and the the ideas and beliefs that kids come with but you can get similar sort of results by asking your friends I oh
0: think.
2: yeah so, so my non-teacher non-science friends if I ask them a question it's often the same answer that the children in my class are going to give so it just speaks volumes to this and um, the misconceptions continuing through oh, into adult life
3: I'm going to throw this out to everyone. You can try this um, and just see. I will give the answer out of fairness. But um, all right, imagine throwing a ping pong ball on top of some water. So it's going to float, right? And turn a cup that's clear upside down over the top of the ping pong ball and just quiz the group in front of you. Where will the ball go if you push the cup down on the floating ball? Will the ball stay on top of the water? Will it go to the middle of the water? Or will it go down to the bottom of the water? And I have asked that very simple question across postgraduate students, right down to kindergarten kids. Good, and it was at the
2: conference too, Ben. No, I, remember I did too.
3: Time. Yeah, and you, and you split the group almost in three. Yes, and it happens all the time. Uh, the answer, by the way, is the ball goes to the bottom. But if you're being fair, the ball okay, the ball goes to the bottom of the of the jug thing that you are full of water. But uh, the ball still by de- is still floating on top of the water no matter where you push the glass because air takes up space and air is displacing the water out of the glass. Um, the point of it is that such a simple thing um, makes you actually genuinely think. I mean, uh, what the misconception is, a lot of people think that the clear glass will cut through the clear water. Therefore, the ball will stay at the top of the water at the very top. Anyway, um, Yes, I do that. I, and then we were—we were at a conference, we were at a science teachers' association conference. We we're in the primary strand, and I threw this to a bunch of adults, and we did split the room. And it happens all the time.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that—that's, I guess, where my pre-service teachers are coming from with, you know, their ideas. And I—I I do very much uh, spend time talking to them uh, about their misconceptions prior to doing some of the experiments and investigations we do on prac, uh, so that they can. Then realize that these beliefs they had are not quite right, yeah. and that we know that's the way to to affect uh conceptual change, don't we? but you need the the students then need that hands on experience. we can't just tell them uh that the moon is not a source of light, we need to prove it somehow that's a difficult one, so I think I think we touched on that one at the conference as well. Because anything to do with space that you can't actually hold in your hands and you can't touch is very very difficult to do.
3: Spatial things, spatial things are very difficult, and it's hard for lots of people. Spatial reasoning is a is is a real skill.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So, um, yeah, I guess Look. curiosity. Let's start there. Uh, let's start with a question, and being a bit curious about the world. And it, it came as a sort of surprise to me that not everyone's curious. So I've always been an avid reader and an avid asker of questions, but not everyone's like that. So I'm wondering, and this can be a question for for people listening as well: is how how do we, you know, turn turn some of our adults around, back to those five year olds that said, "But why?" all the time.
3: Yeah, they, I'd they all like hear it. More
2: adults saying, "But why?"
3: Yeah, our job is to become petulant five-year-olds. Maybe.
2: <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't see why not, but but not petulant. They they have a mm. genuine curiosity about the yes, world. Yes, they do. They're not asking, "But why?" to be difficult or to challenge us. They're they're asking, "But why?" because they genuinely want to know and they want to find out about the world. And you said, "Is it about year year three, four, You said they start losing. Yeah. That. Yeah. Like, I'd like to see what we can do to stop the loss of the curiosity.
3: Yeah, and then there really are. There are inflection points we see. We see the inflection point between moving from, um, so, primary slash elementary school into the middle school slash high school era, you know, grade six through to grade seven. There is a genuine, uh oh. <laughs> that happens. You see it. Excited kids moving into a real science lab and then it changes. And then when a couple of years puberty hits and then it's a whole another kettle of fish again huh. but it's um we're dealing with human psychology but um over yeah. time we will uh we will succeed and um look and i know the way that you're doing is certainly helping so i'm just wondering and it's an odd question to throw you i never throw on a question like this but i thought you know, this might be a different one um imagine if someone had to be your, your replacement as an academic working with those 200 students per semester if they had to replace you to have to teach these pre-service teachers how to teach science what would be a couple of things that you would impart upon them before you this should not be a vacating your desk because you'd be moving on to bigger and greater things but you know, you know what i mean what would what would be like here's what i know is words of wisdom that you can do in place in my role
2: Yeah, I suppose here's what I know is those hands-on learning experiences work for adults as well as children. The five E's that we talk about in science, the engage, explore, explain, elaborate and evaluate uh, that we've been talking about for I think over 20 years now, still so powerful and so valuable. I use the five E's with adults, I suppose, hands-on, get hands-on with science. And the students will learn, and the students will want to teach it um, and ask questions ask lots and lots of questions, because if the students aren't going to ask me questions, I'm asking the students questions. Yeah. So uh, and, and I suppose that's that's just what being a scientist is, isn't it? Yeah. We're we ask questions, people. and we investigate them. Yeah. Yeah, so, I love it. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah, no, I think we're on the same page, Ben. We need to to band together, I think, all of us, some very keen scientist people, and hope to instill some of the um, enthusiasm in others.
3: Oh, for sure. And it's going to happen over time for sure, without a doubt. But, Leslie, this has been fantastic having a chat with you. Um, There'll be some people who would love to reach out to you, though. How might they do that? Where would they need to go?
2: Uh, If you head to the Western Sydney University website and look up our staff profiles, you'll be able to find all of my contact details in there. Uh, Other than that, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, My full name is Leslie Goff through LinkedIn, so I'm happy for people to reach out to me um, in that platform, Uh, particularly any of our early childhood to primary educators that are looking to do some fantastic science in their schools. uh, Happy to support. Any and all programs to spark that curiosity in uh, our Ah, service teachers and with our children. Yeah.
3: Oh, this is perfect. Well, thank you very much. As usual, put those links in the show notes and um, please reach out to Leslie. Look, much appreciated. Have a fantastic evening um, and thank you very much for taking the time to have a chat with me. Thank
2: you very much, Ben.
0: We hope you've been enjoying the Physics Ed podcast. We love making science make sense. Why don't you book us for a science show or workshop in your school? If you're outside of Australia, you can connect with us via a virtual excursion. See our website for more.
1: So I hope you enjoyed that chat with Leslie Goff. I certainly did, and it's really encouraging that we can get primary students into science at a very young age, and this flows right through into high school and into tertiary education as well. These kids are amazing if we give them their chance. So let's do so so by the way you can reach out to leslie on linkedin and as usual we put the links in the show notes and as usual you can always find more on the back catalog of the physics ed podcast there's quite a lot of chats when it comes to science teaching and as usual there's more coming up so you've been listening to me ben newsom at physics education this is the physics ed podcast and i hope to catch you another time
0: you've been listening to another physics ed podcast we're excited about science Subscribe to us on iTunes to download the next episode as soon as it's released. And don't forget, for hundreds of ideas, free experiments, our new Be Amazing book and more, go to physicseducation.com.au. That's physics spelt F-I-Z-Z-I-C-S. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network. A-E-O-N dot, net dot